Hey all, Alex here with a brief correction before we get to the main part of the show. In part one of this look at ball and paddle games, we briefly discussed the company Fun Games and how they had released a breakout clone called Bust Out as part of a compilation game they did called Take 7 in 1975 before Atari had actually released its version of Breakout, explaining at the time that this was possible because they had pilfered materials from Atari that they had used to create a lot of their earliest games so that even though it came out first, it was still technically a clone. After the episode aired, Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, reminded me that he had looked into this a year or two ago, I forget exactly when, and had discovered that this was not in fact true. What probably happened is that Take 7 was an update on an earlier compilation game for fun games called Take 5 that was released in 1975, and older sources appear to have gotten a bit lazy and assigned a 1975 release date to both Take 5 and Take 7. When Ethan actually went back through the trades, however, it became very clear that there's no way this game was released in 1975. While unfortunately, the release of Take 7 was not announced in the trades, there was a notice in early 1977 when Meadows Games bought Fun Games that said that at that time, Fun Games' latest release was Take 7. What this means is that there's no way that this game was released before late 1976 at the earliest, based on their general release schedule. So while it's a great story, to say that Fun Games came out and beat Atari with its own game because of this series of events. Unfortunately, like so many stories like that that end up being too good to be true, this one is definitely too good to be true. So to recap, Take 7 did not precede Breakout and in fact came out in either late 1976 or early 1977. Thank you, as always, to Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, always a diligent researcher and loyal fan, and we now return you to your regularly scheduled Ball and Paddle Part 2 episode, already in progress. This is They Create Worlds, Episode 202, Advanced Balls and Paddles, Part 2. If anybody wants to find me Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We return to you with part two about balls and paddles and the more advanced versions of doing those games, because obviously you haven't had enough of it. They may just have a ball and a paddle now, but eventually they will build bigger balls hit by bigger paddles, and then... They will destroy themselves. <laughs> then we will take over that pathetic Earth planet. Bonus points, as always, if you get that reference. That's right. We are taking a kind of comprehensive look at ball and paddle games from basically their inception and even before that into prehistory of all things. 
all the way up to kind of the end of the 1980s, which is really when the most interesting variations by that time were already out there. Not that there haven't been ball and paddle games since, but that was kind of the heyday of them in that early period. In our last episode, for those who don't remember, we just got Breakout released in the United States, which was the last significant game in the U.S. created with TTL hardware. There'd be one more significant game in uh, Japan using transistor-transistor logic instead of microprocessors, that being Monaco GP. But in the U.S., this was the last one, and it was just a really, really big success. But, of course, it was not just a success in the United States, because, as we talked about in the episode where I basically read a chapter of my book about this, this game was really also the game that really jump-started the Japanese coin-operated video game industry. As I recall, Japan really did embrace Breakout. It was one of the really big pre-Space Invaders major hit. Yeah, I mean, it was the hit in the Japanese markets, really. As we've talked about in other episodes, Pong did make it over to Japan very early in 1973, both through Sega, who imported a single unit and then copied the board to release their own version, Pongtron, and Taito, which just imported boards en masse from the board maker that was actually making the boards for Atari, Marty Carlucci, and was shipping them over to Taito as well on the side, perhaps not quite in the spirit of his production contract with Atari, and then released their version, Elipong, both in the summer of 1973, and as in the United States, both companies then also created soccer variants, hockey variants, four-player variants, all of that kind of thing. But video games did not catch on in quite the same way from the very beginning in Japan. Japan had a very vibrant electromechanical games industry. We've talked before about many of those companies, principally among them uh, Sega, Taito, Namco, and Casco, the big four in the EM days. We talked about how they helped revive the Moribund Arcade in the United States with games like Periscope and Missile and what became Chicago Coin Speedway based on a Casco game and, and all of this. So there was already a vibrant local industry, and they were behind on solid-state technology. There weren't a lot of people in the Japanese coin-operated amusement industry that could work with that stuff. So they primarily just imported a few games from Japan and made a few games locally, particularly at Taito and Sega, two larger companies where they could get some expertise in. There were a couple of games that were hits. I mean, Taito's Speed Race, we've talked about before from Tomohiro Nishikado, was certainly a big hit. Sega's baseball game, Last Inning, did pretty good business. You know, there were a few games, but it was still primarily an electromechanical market. And certainly there was no Pong boom in the same way that there had been a Pong boom in the United States. This is just speculation on my part, and I fully admit that, but I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was a two-player competitive game. That really didn't sit with the Japanese sensibilities of challenging strangers to head-to-head competitions. The story goes, and I'm not a complete expert on this period in the Japanese uh, market, but the story goes that Street Fighter II, the one-on-one fighting game, was initially not that popular in the game centers. 
it was determined that the problem was that people didn't like being at the same cabinet, seeing their opponent right next to them. And then some game centers started modifying it so that they would jury rig two units together. And you sat down at units in Japanese arcades. They all had a kind of standard cabinet. So when you were sitting at yours and the person on the other side was sitting at theirs, you couldn't see each other. It wasn't that same in-your-face kind of thing, and that's when the popularity really took off. Possible some of those stories are overblown a little bit, but even if that story is not entirely true, it still says something about the Japanese mentality towards these types of games. So I imagine something like Pong and its many variants—hockey, soccer, volleyball, basketball, etc.— probably didn't land as well for that reason. When it came to other types of games, obviously Speed Race was a hit. I mean, it had reasonably nice, fast-paced action. But in a lot of genres, they hadn't really gotten beyond what could be done in the electromechanical games yet. Not until the advent of the microprocessor, which again is something Japan was behind on, as we talked about in our Space Invaders episode. Could you really start to surpass the complexity of the best electromechanical games, not just in terms of number of objects and all of that, but also in terms of the speed of the action? Because I do think the adrenaline rush is important. We talked about this in the last episode, that I do think that part of the reason why ball and paddle games persisted for so long and were popular from Pong to Breakout is that this was a period where the hardware was so primitive that it was hard to get fast action unless you had the most minimal objects imaginable. Little squares and rectangles bouncing around the screen. And you couldn't quite capture that. And then when you add in on top of that that you didn't have the built-in expertise in the Japanese market, where the coin-op companies really couldn't do much with video game hardware at first— there wasn't much incentive to go down that road. But as I said, it's not like nobody was doing it. And of course, Atari had eagerly gotten into the market somewhat foolishly back in 1973 by establishing its own subsidiary, Atari Japan. And then when that venture failed, for reasons we won't get into here, they sold the whole operation to Namco, which we of course also talked about when we did a Namco history episode. Namco brought Breakout into Japan in 1976, not too long after it was released in the U.S. It was released in the U.S. in the spring. It was in Japan by the summer. Unlike all these other video games, unlike Pong, I mean, it just became a phenomenon. When we think of video game phenomenons in Japan, we always are immediately drawn to Space Invaders. There's a good reason for that. I mean, obviously, Space Invaders was bigger than anything that had ever been seen hundreds of thousands of units. It really only succeeded as quickly as it did, because I'm sure it would have still been a success either way. It only succeeded as quickly as it did because Breakout set the tone before it. This was the first game that really caught the Japanese imagination. It wasn't the first hit in Japan. As I said, Speed Race, Last Inning, even Tank did okay when uh, Namco brought it over, the, another Atari game. But this was the first outsized hit. I think that's because it was single player. I think, not based on me being any kind of expert on Japanese cultural norms, because believe me, I'm not, but based on some of the other stories we've heard about video games like Street Fighter 2, 
it seems to me that maybe a one-player game was a better way to get the Japanese interested in this type of gameplay. And of course, in 1976, at this period of time when Japan doesn't have microprocessor games yet, and America barely has microprocessor games at this point, this is, again, something that just has faster action than you're seeing in other video games and more intense thrills. And I think that's what was needed to really get people interested in the video game. It's why Breakout was a success. It's why Space Invaders was a success. Because it felt like a life or death struggle unfolding at a very fast speed. Life and death of my quarter at any rate, because I have to keep (laughs) that ball bouncing. And the longer I keep it bouncing, the longer my quarter is worth. That's right. Or uh, your 100 yen coin if you are across the Pacific Ocean. It became a big success, but then, of course, it hit the same problem that most big successes hit and the same problem that Atari's Pong hit. It was so successful, the company producing it could not keep up with the demand for it. In this case, of course, Namco was importing rather than producing. But same difference. They could not keep up with the demand for the game. We've talked before about how this led to some interesting issues. We talked about this in our Namco episode, about how the Yakuza tried to hone in on Namco's business and take over distribution to get rid of all of their competitors. Obviously, Nakamura didn't want anything to do with that. According to Nakamura himself, as told to Stephen Kent, he, during an international trade show in the U.S. or Europe or somewhere, he approached Bushnell at the show and said, hey... We're selling them faster than you can ship them. Could we get some more? According to Nakamura's recollection, Bushnell was very hungover at the time because he was having a very good convention and was basically in no shape whatsoever to take the request. So he started doing the only thing he felt he could. He started making his own units. As we talked about in our Namco episode, that was the beginning of Namco as a manufacturer of video games. Now, of course, this also opened up the market to competition from other manufacturers. And just like happened in the case of Atari with Pong, these clone makers were in large part spurred by the distributors or the operators, more often in this case rather than distributors, since there were very few pure distributors in the Japanese market, the operators who were cranky that they could not get units, and so were like, well, I'm going to get someone else to build a unit for me then. That's, we may recall from our Allied Leisure episode, how the most successful Pong clone of that first Pong boom paddle battle came about. A distributor in California that was annoyed that they couldn't get the units they needed from Atari shipped a cabinet to Allied Leisure in Florida and was basically like, we know you have a large factory and you don't have much going on. Why don't you make one of these and we'll buy it from you? That's not how every clone maker started. That's not how Ramtech, who we talked about last episode, started. But it wasn't just the manufacturers that were applying this pressure. Distributors and operators wanted the clones, too, because they were fed up that they couldn't sell anything. The very first company brought in to do this, at least according to uh, Akagi in his history of the coin-op industry, and he was the editor of Game Machine magazine at the time, so while he's not infallible— He certainly is an authority on that market. According to him, the very first one to release a clone, or at least a more legitimate clone, there could have been some really fly-by-night bootlegs uh, before that or something, 
was the company Universal Sales, which has nothing to do with Universal Pictures or Universal Studios. Universal started as a jukebox company founded by a young man named Kazuo Okada in 1969, after he had already been installing and operating jukeboxes for a couple of years at that time. He transitioned from that in 1970 to manufacturing, or rather started a manufacturing division to produce pachinko machines, a very popular Japanese gray market gambling slash coin-operated amusement. He did have some trouble with that at first, but he was able to get a successful operation going. The reason that he created a breakout clone, uh, again according to Akagi, is that there was a jukebox vendor by the name of Takeshi Miyajima who wanted to sell breakouts and and didn't have an outlet to do that. I don't know if he tried to get them from Namco and couldn't. I mean, I don't have that level of information. But let's just say he wanted to sell them and he didn't have any way to get any. So he asked Okada if he would manufacture one. And so Okada did. It was called Scratch. Now, a lot of these Japanese clones you won't find any video of online, Jeffrey. So don't go too crazy trying to fill out the show notes here in all seriousness. This was the very first of these, released in early 1977. Then after that, the floodgates opened throughout the year. And I mean, so many companies that became seminal to Japanese video games started with a breakout clone. And most of them were just straight-up clones. I mean, there, there wasn't really any variation in gameplay or anything. It was just the exact same game, just made by other people. And this is how so many companies started. Before Breakout, really the only companies in video games in Japan were Sega and Taito, who were releasing both games that they licensed from North America and games they manufactured themselves. There was Esco Trading, Hayao Nakayama's company that would later be bought by Sega, which was not a manufacturer at all but would import some games from some of the more minor North American companies and sell those. And Namco, who also was not manufacturing their own games, but had the exclusive rights to Atari. That was the Japanese market. Two manufacturers and two importers. Many, many more companies in electromechanical amusements. Many, many more companies in Pachinko. But two manufacturers and two importers. That was basically the entire Japanese coin-operated video game market. You wouldn't think with how things developed that that's how it would start. It seems like once the video game industry really took hold in Japan, it's like everyone and their brother had a video game-related company. Well, yes, and that did happen. And, And this is the moment with Breakout that it's happening. There had been nothing popular enough before that to spur this kind of growth. But now we have Namco, previously just an importer, becoming a manufacturer. Not quite a developer of its own original games yet, but a manufacturer because they can't get enough breakout units from the U.S. Then so many companies get in. We already talked about Universal Sales, probably best known as the creators of the game Mr. Do. They got into the video game industry because this one guy asked them to make a breakout clone. We talked about this, of course, in another episode as well, but Konami is another one. Konami was in the metal game business. They were basically a maker of gray market gambling games. 
But again, they had become the exclusive manufacturer, uh, as we talked about in our Konami episodes, and uh, which, of course, also comes from Akagi's book. They were the exclusive manufacturer for two operators, again, it's operators, named Maru Sancho and Kato Amusement Industry, who jointly owned a sales company called Lijak. Later became a Konami subsidiary. It's complicated. Go to our Konami episode if you care to know more. You know, the people at these operators and at Lijak, and presumably Kazuki Konami as well, saw this market starting to develop. So in 1977, they created a game called Blockyard, and then created another couple after that. That was Konami's first video game. Namco, not their first game, but the first they manufactured themselves. Universal, Konami, let's keep going. Little company called Data East. Data East was tiptoeing around this market. Again, they got involved first through the metal game boom. We talked about this before in some of our other Japanese episodes as well. Right before Breakout, the main fad was so-called metal games, which were basically slot machines where you didn't wager or lose any money. Well, I mean, you still pay with money to play them, but you don't win any money because gambling is illegal in Japan. So a lot of these companies were in metal games already, but the metal game market was beginning to collapse because there had been too much under the table gambling going on with them. And so the police, the national police, were starting to crack down on metal game parlors. So a lot of these companies that had been manufacturing metal games like Konami, like Data East, like a few others that we're going to talk about here, they were looking for the next big thing to keep the factory going. And so Breakout arrived at the perfect time in that sense as well, where you had a lot of manufacturers, a lot of small manufacturers that had just grown up in the last two, three, four years around the metal game fad that suddenly needed something else to produce. And Breakout became that something else. So Data East, the very first game they had ever released was a metal game in 1977 called Jacklot. So in 1978, they release a Breakout clone, Super Break, and that's their first video game. Irem. Irem is actually itself primarily an operator of games and distributor of games. They actually started out by becoming a giant in the operation field. At one time in the 70s, they were the fourth largest operator in Japan, even though they didn't make their own games. You know, the three big operators were the factory operation combos, Taito, Sega, Namco. Irem, which was still under its original name, IPM Company Limited, was number four behind them. So here's another operator, just like Konami's getting in because of an operator, just like Universal is. In this case, IPM itself is an operator, and the founder of the company, Kenzo Tsujimoto, I think had already been considering maybe getting into the manufacturing business, and he decided to use Breakout as his way to do it. So in late 1977, IPM, later Irem, released the game Blockout, which according to Tsujimoto in an interview with Replay Magazine, sold 35,000 units. These are some big hits we're talking about here. Of course, Tsujimoto was later also the founder of Capcom. So Capcom did not exist in this time period, so it could not release a block-breaking game. But it was Irem's first game, and it was the first game manufactured by the guy who would later found Capcom. I could go on and on and on. I won't. The only other one I'll mention real fast is SNK, which still went by its full name Shin Nihon Kikaku at the time. SNK's first video game was Micon Block, 
which was also a breakout clone. So we're talking the giants of the Japanese industry. Virtually all of them got their start in video games with breakout clones. Now, why did breakout clones proliferate so much? Why were so many of them needed? Obviously, it was a popular game, but how could it possibly need so many tens of thousands of units in a country the size of Japan? The reason for that, which is something we've also talked about because we'd done a History of Taito episode where we talked about this. This episode is more about bringing together a lot of different things. The reason for that is the industry pioneered new locations for coin-operated amusements in this time. We talked about this also in our Japanese arcades episode. But the Game Center concept that we think of today didn't really exist yet. That really got its start with Space Invaders. At this time, games were found as adjuncts to other venues. Department store rooftops were a place where you found a lot of games. Bowling alleys, because bowling had become a popular pastime in Japan. Supermarkets would have them. Inns and hotels may have a few. But they were all attached to other businesses. One business that did not particularly have them at this time were not bars in this case, but kind of coffee and tea houses, places where college students and older teenagers would hang out. In the United States, we may recall, a similar kind of establishment would be the cocktail lounges. Uh, And no, Big Jeffrey's not making a comeback here. Not today. But were cocktail lounges, you know, kind of a high-end location where people are sitting around quietly rather than noisily crowding around games. These locations were locations that the Japanese coin-op industry had had a bit of a history with through jukeboxes, particularly Taito and Sega, the two big companies in jukeboxes in Japan. Jukeboxes were starting to be replaced, especially by karaoke, which started to become a thing in the 1970s was invented at the beginning of the decade. There are a few different people that take credit for it. But the first machines were developed in the early 70s. And by the late 70s, that's becoming the musical device. And obviously, Taito gets into karaoke as well. But this was especially initially something that was pushing these coin-op companies out of bars, coffee houses, tea houses, places that they were accustomed to having a presence. Which is why Taito made the decision to create a new kind of cabinet. Uh, I can't claim for certain that they were the very first people to make a cabinet of this kind in Japan. And in fact, uh, I've even seen one source that says Namco had experimented with these all the way back in 1973 without any success. So they may not have been the very first, but they decided to combat this by creating what they called a tabletop or TT cabinet which was similar to the American cocktail cabinet of a few years before, in that the idea was to have a monitor embedded in a table, and then you would sit at the table and look down on the monitor, and you could play games quietly at your seat while sipping coffee or tea or whatever. So Taito introduced this tabletop cabinet in 1977, and because Breakout was such a huge hit, They pioneered these cabinets with their own breakout clone, released it as TT Block, and the breakout fad had become so big and so robust that establishments started ordering tons of these tables. 
places like coffee houses, tea houses, snack bars, places where, like I said, college students or older uh, high school students would hang out, suddenly were becoming game-playing centers as well. And this helped expand the reach of the games outside of the traditional venues that they had been in, opened them up even more than before to this kind of high school, college-age crowd. And just grew the entire industry and, of course, then grew the demand for these games. And many of these games that I referred to and many of the companies that were making them, these were cocktail tables rather than standard upright cabinets. This opened up all of these new areas that then Space Invaders would dive right into. And of course, as we know, because we did a Space Invaders episode, and Nishikado said this many places, it's not like I discovered it or anything, but how did Space Invaders come about? Because Taito told Nishikado to create a game that could outdo Breakout. He decided to make a game that was essentially Breakout, except that instead of blocks, it was aliens, and instead of a paddle, it was a ship, and instead of a ball, it was laser blasts. It's obviously slightly more complicated than that. You can go to our Space Invaders history episode if you want to know more, but basically, Space Invaders was derived from and influenced by and based on Breakout. Hard to get much more influential than that when it comes to the flowering of not just the Japanese industry, but even of the global coin-op and video game industries. That's quite a legacy for Breakout to have. Arguably, you could say that Breakout's sort of the pinnacle of ball and paddle games, but looking at our time frame here, I'm guessing that's not the case. That's right. No, we definitely have a few more to go. I certainly think that it was the pinnacle of the game as a phenomenon, at least in Japan. But it certainly wasn't the end of ball and paddle style games as a very successful format. In fact, this would continue on into a small number of clones that were made and variations that were made over the next couple of years. Even in the United States, where it was very successful, it sold over 10,000 units, but wasn't this kind of epoch-creating, you know, phenomenon. It was nothing like the Pong boom, probably in part because the Pong boom had already happened. So even though Breakout was popular and people liked it, it wasn't going to create that same mad rush that Pong did, because at the end of the day, it is basically single-player Pong with some, uh, you know, interesting brick-breaking mechanics. Other companies in the United States took notice of this, too, and did some of their own variation. And the key one here is actually, once again, the company Exidy, which we talked about on our first episode as being one of the companies that was really innovating in this space. Again, this comes down to the fact that outside of Atari, it was the other small kind of West Coast technology companies that were really pushing things forward in coin-operated video games. Some of the big Chicago companies were involved as well, most notably Midway. Midway started doing some more interesting stuff in this time frame, too, because they had Dave Nutting Associates, another company that we've talked about that could help them. But it was these small technical companies that were really pushing forward, and Exidy was one of these. Just as how Ivy pioneered, essentially, the breakout formula with his game Clean Sweep that we talked about last time, he also evolved the breakout formula past Atari's product, almost a call-and-response thing going on here, with his own variation on this called Circus. Circus is breakout-like, but it is not purely a breakout clone. 
because it actually plays very differently. Again, just as when he was doing Clean Sweep, Ivy was trying to come up with something unique, a take that was more interesting than doing just a clone. And so he decided to do two things to make this happen, added animation and more interesting physics. Circus is a game in which you are moving a seesaw instead of a paddle back and forth across the bottom of the screen. On this seesaw are two clowns. We know they're clowns from the cabinet art, not from the in-game graphics, because of course these are little more than stick figures. There are four little platforms, two on either side of the screen. At the start of the round, one of the clowns is already on the seesaw, and then the other clown wanders in from one of these four platforms, I believe it's randomly determined, and falls down onto the seesaw, launching his fellow clown into the air. That old gag. Across the top of the screen are three rows of colorful balloons. The color in this case, not made with a color monitor, but made by the old cellophane strip method that we've seen in so many other games, including Space Invaders. These rows of balloons are not static, as the bricks are in Breakout. They're actually flying across the screen horizontally. Your job is to launch the clowns, who alternate, just like in the old circus gag, on either side of the seesaw launching each other into the air. They need to hit the balloons to pop the balloons. But it's not about clearing the screen like it is in Breakout. The way it works is it goes on forever until you lose your lives. Because what happens is you have the three rows. The higher rows are worth more than the lower rows. Once you knock out all of the balloons in a row, you get a a little bonus for clearing the row. And then that entire row reappears. The other two rows don't disappear. They stay exactly as they were before. It's just every time you clear a row, that row starts over. So there's a a bit of strategy involved here because it's, of course, a lot easier to hit the lower rows, but you get more points for hitting the higher rows. If you clear the lowest row too often, you're really inhibiting your score because that row will keep regenerating and blocking the higher rows. So you kind of have to do your best, if you want a good score, to knock out just enough of the first row that you can get to the second and third rows and try to clear those out more often than you clear out the first row. And indeed, even though this game came out before high score tracking started, it did have a feature that showed you what the day's high score was. So it even has a proto-form of score tracking in it, even though we're not to the full-fledged Space Invaders model where there's always a high score displayed at the top of the screen. Because it's a game where you really need strategy to get points. The other thing that also makes this challenging, especially to try to clear higher rows before lower rows, is that the force and gravity are taken into account in this game. What is force? Mass times acceleration. Unlike the breakout paddle, which basically is always, I mean, it'll speed up eventually, but is basically always able, theoretically, to hit any part of the exposed screen at any given time because it's about getting the angle right. In this one, it's not about getting the angle right. 
it's about getting enough of a bounce on your clown that when he comes down with all of his force, he gives a higher bounce to his friend and trying to keep that maximum velocity going. We'll, of course, put this in the show notes and you'll see in a playthrough, especially the beginning, most of the bounces are not that high because they're little falls. They're little falls. And so they don't get enough acceleration to give a great deal of force to landing on the seesaw. So it's not only do you need to get to those higher balloons to get more points, but it's really hard to get to the top row because it's not like Breakout where once you open up a path, as long as you do the angle correctly, you can always get up there. You have to make sure that you keep doing these high bounces. So it's got some really interesting challenge mechanics that Breakout doesn't have. It's a different kind of challenge. It's a game of gravity, as one video I saw put it, rather than a game of angles. I'm watching some gameplay here, and I think I can add some more context here. Sure. It appears that where you hit on the seesaw does affect a bit of how much it goes up. That would make sense, too, yeah. I have also noticed that if you manage to do that thing that we all love to do is get behind the enemy lines and start bouncing around, then the guy's up there longer. Then he comes down a lot harder and a lot faster, and the other guy just shoots up way fast, way hard, and you're scrambling to go and catch him. Also, there's a little bit of danger where you're at the left or right side because it is possible to land onto the uh, platforms. Yes. Then that can screw with your timing of, okay, when is this person going to land? Or if they crash into that and then fall down from that height, all that momentum is lost. Yeah. But you might want to have that loss of momentum because you had that guy bouncing up there for 10 seconds and he's going really crazy. It's a master's class in physics and a very primitive kind of physics engine in a video game. How Ivy is really a somewhat unheralded creator. Most people, if they've heard of him at all, just know he's the guy behind the infamous Death Race. But as we've seen in his ball and paddle games, as we've seen in Clean Sweep and now as we've seen in Circus, he is often pushing the cutting edge because this game has a physics engine, for lack of a better term. It's not really an engine. But it has a physics engine that is way beyond what most video games are doing at this time. The clowns have delightful animations. Their limbs are flailing comically. When they miss the seesaw, they do a nice splat. Even though they're stick figures, they're animated really nicely. The sound effects are wonderful in this thing. How Ivy was always very good at sound. And of course, the sound, this is a microprocessor game, but of course, the sound is still analog at this time. This is all analog sounds. The sound is wonderful. And he even includes little tunes. There's a little tune when uh, the game starts. There's a little tune when you clear a row. The action stops for a moment as you get your bonus points. And there's a tune. And then when your guy goes splat, it even plays a little bit of the famous funeral march. Da, 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 This is, again, very early. It's not the first game to include musical interludes between the action. But this is very early for that kind of thing. So it's a multimedia tour de force. I mean, this is AAA in the context of 1978, which is when it was released. It was premiered in 77 at the AMOA show. Uh, maybe a few units got out in 1977, but it primarily had its run in 1978. That's AAA stuff for 1978, man. I can certainly see it. 
you got some really good little jingles in there, stuff that I would expect to see out of more the early 80s or even mid-80s as far as sound effects goes. Mm -hmm. You're right. The animation is very smooth. It's very concise. It's comical. It plays along with what's going on. When the seesaw is being hit and going back and forth, it almost sounds like a little lightsaber or a laser blast <laughs> going off as it goes, wing, broom, mm -hmm. broom. Mm -hmm. It's delightful. And so as a result, it was a massive hit. Now, it was a massive hit in the context of 1978 U.S., we do have to remember that you had the Pong boom and collapse, then you had another peak in 1976, and then a decline as solid-state pinball began to take hold. And then, of course, you had Space Invaders just completely redefine the market not too long afterwards. We do have to keep that context in mind. According to one market research study that I uh, got my hands on, so this is a sales estimate, of course, but it sold 7,000 units. Yeah, in the context of a Space Invaders or a Defender or a Pac-Man, that is not a lot of units. But let me tell you, in 1978, according to this market research study, this was the best-selling coin-operated video game in the United States of 1978. This was the game of the year. Breakout was pretty much the best-selling game that came out in 1976. We don't have complete figures, but I'm pretty confident in saying that it was most likely the best-selling. If it wasn't, it was certainly top two or three. Now, this derivative of it, which is just like when How Ivy was doing Clean Sweep compared to Pong, was just different enough from the game it was inspired by, in this case, Breakout to find its own audience, is now the best-selling game of 1978. Other companies copy it. Midway's version uh, is probably the most widespread, uh, called Clowns. It goes to Japan. Uh, it's licensed, and it becomes a hit in Japan, extending that breakout boom. There are other clones in Japan as well. This is kind of the second wave of breakout, and it's, it's a smaller wave. In the United States and Japan, both. It doesn't have quite the same impact, but it's still an incredibly impactful game and demonstrates that now that we have microprocessor hardware that can remove some of the abstraction, we can keep the same gameplay, but make it a little more interesting in this way or that way using the power of a microprocessor, get some graphics in there, get some more interesting physics in there, and still have a really good time with that kind of thing. In a time when microprocessors were beginning to allow games to become more complex, but we still weren't to the point where we had hardware that even a year later, literally even just a year later, could do something like a Galaxian. So that's Circus. That was certainly the high point of the 1970s in the arcade for uh, ball and paddle games. Atari did release a sequel to Breakout the same year, 1978, Super Breakout, created by Ed Logg, later of Asteroids and Centipede fame. The idea to do a sequel was Nolan Bushnell's, who told Owen Rubin they should do it, who told Ed Logg that they were thinking about doing it. Ed Logg just, according to interviews with him, just did it on his own time. Like, it was not an official Atari project. But that's the other thing that we're going to learn becomes very appealing about these ball and paddle games moving forward. Even as the technology gets to the point that 
you can make more complex games than Breakout. You can make your Space Invaders, you can make your Galaxian, you can make your Donkey Kong. On and on and on as Moore's Law continues its march forward through time. The appeal of sometimes still returning to that ball and paddle well is that you can put something together relatively quickly, easily, and cheaply. And if it captures the public's imagination, then you take in a lot of money for very little effort. I mean, obviously, in the early days, when Wozniak was doing whatever black magic he was doing to create the initial prototype of Breakout, at that time, that was still like the pinnacle of doing this stuff. Once the microprocessor comes in, and of course, the games switch over to microprocessors, Circus, as I said, was microprocessor, Super Breakout was microprocessor. Now that's no longer the cutting edge, but it's simple to do while still maintaining a lot of play appeal. So that's why someone like Ed Logg can just be like, well, you know, yeah, if Nolan Bushnell, according to Owen Rubin, says that doing a breakout sequel would be a cool thing to do, yeah, I'll, I'll go do that. No one even needs to know. I'll just work on it on my own. <laughs> Whatever. So he creates Super Breakout, which just has a bunch of variations on Breakout, including one that's very Space Invaders-like, where the bricks start descending as you play the game. And it does well for Atari. It sells like 4,800 units or something like that. Not the same level of hit as Breakout. Not the same level of hit as Circus. Now for a moment, we need to take a step back and talk about ball and paddle games in the home. Again, we've done a home pong episode, so we're not going to belabor the point. But the home kind of follows the same path that the arcade did, which is the technology we're starting with is very primitive. There's only so much we can do in a consumer product with TTL hardware before it gets so complex it's too expensive to be considered a home product. So, of course, when the first truly successful home video games come in, even when the first video game, as we talked about before, the Magnavox Odyssey comes in, ball and paddle is the direction they take. So, of course, it's Home Pong by Atari in 1975 that really spurs the market. And Magnavox, who actually sells the most units that year because they've already been in production for a long time, so they just have better manufacturing capability— Seeing how successful Pong was in the arcade, deciding, okay, let's take our Odyssey system, strip out all that stuff that people didn't care about very much anyway, and just basically have it play Pong. And then they upgraded the technology a little bit. They went from uh, diode to transistor logic to using uh, medium-scale integration microchips, integrated circuits, you know. Basically, they were like, okay, well, you know, we put all these other games in here, and televisions are coming in a variety of crazy sizes now. So it's harder to make overlays work with them. The only games people ended up liking were the ones where they're hitting the ball back and forth anyway. So let's take our Odyssey and streamline it into just the the ping pong style games, which is how we got the Odyssey 100 and Odyssey 200 released uh, the same year as Home Pong. There's one thing that is different and takes the path of the home a little bit differently than the arcade. Well, there's two things. First of all, as we talked about in our other episodes, the fact that true mass production of consumer products and true high-volume manufacturing means prices collapse immediately, as the high-volume means higher yields means everything's cheaper. They don't maintain their price value, but the other thing is that by the time you get to TTL hardware in the home, Once you get to this TTL hardware in the home where it gets advanced enough that you can do something like, say, a breakout, 
it's suddenly become more expensive than it's worth. So there was a home pong boom in 75 and 76 primarily. There was not a home breakout boom in the same way that there was a home pong boom. Because there were breakout style units released. Atari released one called Video Pinball. But the problem is Video Pinball was a $100 console that just played breakout and some pinball style ball and paddle games for a hundred bucks. The Pong systems by now, the new Pong systems go for 70. You can get last year's model for like 30. The value proposition isn't there. So even though there are some systems like that, of course, in Japan, Nintendo has a huge hit with their Pong clones in 77, their color TV games. They also do a breakout game the next year that does okay, but is not nearly as popular as the Pong ones were, because by this time, you're getting priced out. You're not getting good play value for your money. Of course, the programmables are coming in at the same time. So the programmables come in and kind of steal that thunder, which is why we don't have a home breakout boom, even though we have a small number of dedicated consoles come out that do play breakout, like the video pinball machine from Atari and Nintendo's color TV game Block Kuzushi. They called the games Borokuzushi games in Japan, which like meant blockbusting, I think, is what it translates to, more or less. At this time, the market shifts over to the programmables. Again, we're not going to do a whole history of programmable consoles here as part of the ball and paddle thing, but it's good to point out that at every stage, there were always ball and paddle games. I mean, when the VCS was released, Video Olympics was one of the games, which was a bunch of Pong variants. Wasn't the best-selling game on the system, but it was there, and in fact, Sears in their version packaged it with the system. Breakout, when it came out on the VCS in 1978, it did very well. Sold well over a million units over its lifetime. Ported by a talented programmer named Brad Stewart, who later went on to uh, a magic. The other thing, though, that's really interesting that happened on the consoles is that just like the early arcade games, like Pong, provided thrilling action without the need for very advanced audiovisual bells and whistles. You could get good speed and good gameplay from it on the technology of the time, whereas if you had tried to do something more graphically complex, it wouldn't work as well. You had the same phenomenon in the home by this time on the VCS hardware, where you could get some really interesting gameplay going with very minimal graphics and that could actually allow for fast and adrenaline-pumping gameplay on the VCS, which wasn't necessarily possible with a lot of the other games on the system. The other thing is that on the Atari VCS, the way the paddle controllers worked, because it had separate paddle controllers that you used to play these bomb paddle games, the paddle controller was actually two paddles that plugged into a single controller interface. So you could have four paddle controllers plugged into an Atari VCS at once without the need for any kind of special adapter. This opened the way to something that was otherwise essentially impossible on the early consoles. Four-player, multiplayer games. That brings us to kind of the next interesting ball and paddle game we have to look at, which is the best-selling original concept game that Atari ever released on the VCS that was not based on a pre-existing arcade game or on a licensed property. That is the game Warlords. Some people at this point will be saying, 
wait a minute, Alex. You're saying it was the best-selling original concept, and you defined an original concept as something that was not an arcade game. But there was a Warlords arcade game, Alex, so wasn't the Atari VCS Warlords game a conversion of that game? They play basically the same. The answer is actually no. It is not a conversion of the arcade game. We actually have to explain a little bit of this history here to get an understanding of this. In the very early days of the company, in the 70s, we talked about this a little last episode in the context of Breakout as well. One of the primary ways they came up with game ideas is they would have brainstorming sessions. We talked about that in the last episode, where anybody at all that was part of the session could come in and pitch game ideas, and they could come with just a brief elevator pitch. They could come with a detailed design document. If they really wanted to, they could do storyboards. It could be as minimal or as fancy as they wanted. The best of these ideas were preserved in some way, shape, or form. At some point, this evolved into a book of game ideas. I don't know if they kept a a formal book the whole time, but by 1980, this had evolved into a book of game ideas with some of the best ideas from these brainstorming sessions. These ideas would often be used as a way to help new employees come to grips with making games. Because making games is a very different programming endeavor and a very different creative endeavor than the kind of work that even uh, competent or very skilled programmers were necessarily doing in their previous jobs. So that's a lot to throw at somebody all at once, telling them both that they have to learn how to program on these idiosyncratic systems and they have to be creative and come up with a game. So often as a shortcut, they would be turned loose on the idea book for their first couple of game projects to get the germ of an idea to get their creative juices flowing and help them get acclimated to this whole thing. The reason that we have both coin-operated and home versions of this game, Warlords, that are not derived from each other is that both the arcade programmers, Norm Avalar and uh, Greg Rivera, and the home programmer, a new hire by the name of Carla Maninsky, one of the few women involved in this industry at the time, got the idea out of the game idea book. We don't always know who generated the ideas in these books, but in this case, we actually do. The ultimate genesis for this game was done by a gentleman by the name of Roger Hector. Roger Hector has been interviewed by a few people, There are a few interviews with him online, and I also had the privilege of interviewing him as well. Roger Hector, as he told me, joined the company in 1976 and was an industrial designer, so he was working on cabinets. Then uh, he moved to the graphic art department where he wasn't working on graphics in games because they didn't have artists doing that yet, but he was doing like the marquees and side panels, you know, designing the art for the games and stuff like that. Even though at this time uh, he wasn't a game designer, he would become one later, he would come to these brainstorming sessions and he would contribute ideas just as everyone else would. One day, just while he was sitting at home, according to one of the other interviews he's done, He just came up with this idea for this kind of Kings in the Castle style game, ball and paddle game, where you would have four players, one in each corner of the screen. They would have a castle made out of breakout style bricks, and they would have a shield that would act as a paddle. 
then there would be a fireball that was basically the ball, and there would be this graphical object representing the king inside this castle of breakout bricks. It's similar in idea. It's kind of a cross between breakout and elimination, uh, one of the games we talked about last time, which is that you're trying to knock all the bricks out of your opponent's castle and then hit that king in the center, which causes them to be eliminated. Last man standing scores a point, and then I think it's like five rounds. After five rounds, whoever has the most points wins. So he came up with this idea, and and he did storyboards, because he was an industrial designer and graphic artist. He was comfortable with this, so he gave a pretty detailed overview of what this game would look like, and this was kept in the Book of Game Ideas. People in coin-op and in consumer ended up getting a hold of that and liking the idea. So it was under development at the same time by these two different teams, and they came out very close to each other in time. Warlords came out in the arcade in about April of 1981, and the VCS game came out in May of 1981. It was being advertised for months before that. It was being advertised before the arcade game ever hit the arcades, because they debuted it at the CES show in January. It wasn't ready for release yet, but that's when they started touting it. Believe me, it's definitely not a port of the arcade game, because they were <laughs> they were happening too close in time to each other, but we know that that's the common link, is Roger Hector's idea. Warlords is really fascinating, because it's a four-player multiplayer game. And again, on the VCS, because the graphics can be so simple, it's really fast action. There are game modes, because the Atari uh, VCS, you could select between multiple game modes. There are even game modes where you could catch using the button. You could catch the ball with your shield and hold on to it for a second and reposition your paddle before launching it again to try to get a little more precision. You can't do that in every gameplay mode on the VCS, but on some of them you can. This was the first four-player multiplayer phenomenon, and it was really one of only two multiplayer competitive games of any kind of stature on the VCS. I'm not saying it was one of the only two. There were others, like Video Olympics, but Combat, which shipped with the system, and Warlords. Those were the multiplayer tour de forces on the VCS. Because of that, because it was such a fun game with fast action, interesting strategy, especially if you're using the fireball-catching modes, and highly competitive, it sold at least 1.8 million copies. We have some partial internal sales figures for it. It sold at least 1.8 million copies, which makes it, as I said, the best-selling game that Atari released for the VCS. Not anybody, but Atari released for the VCS. That was not based on either an arcade license or a third-party license like E.T., I know that's a lot of caveats, best-selling except for this and except for this and except for that. But still, that just shows the enduring success that Ball and Paddle games are having, that Breakout can sell over 1.5 million units on the VCS, and Warlords can do even better, going up to 1.8 million. And I think in that case, it's because you couldn't do much interesting, fast-action, competitive multiplayer on a VCS because of limited hardware. But once again, just as propelled the popularity of Pong and Breakout in the arcades— The fact that you're keeping the audiovisual elements so simple means that you can put all your processing power towards just having really slick, high-speed gameplay. As someone who's played some Atari games in his lifetime, 
there's plenty of them that are very much in the vein of, okay, I played this thing and I'm done with it. Mm-hmm. Warlords is one of those few games that I can see myself coming back to, especially if I'm young and I want to have some competition with my friends. Hey, I bet you a dollar I can beat you. Yeah. Say you're an older crowd. I bet that I can beat you in this, and I'll bet you a drink of some sort. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, it's essentially the golden eye of its day yeah. for all of you uh, people that grew up with an N64. Four-player competitive action. Yeah, I can certainly see people spend the night, wee hours in the morning, playing this yeah. back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, it became a, a pretty decent hit. In the arcade, it didn't do as well. I imagine that's in large part because there were more options in the arcade. Not that it wasn't fun in the arcade. But probably harder to get four players together in an arcade setting. It's not as fun when you have the computer controlling some of them. Plus, there are more advanced games coming out. I mean, it's all about the high score chasing in the arcade at this point. It's not really about playing each other competitively. So it only sells a couple of thousand units in the arcade. The coin-op version is largely the same. There are a few differences. Of course, it is graphically more impressive. Another thing is, is it does have the fireball holding, fireball catching mechanic that's available in some modes of the VCS game. But with the added wrinkle that if you hold on to the fireball for too long, it will start destroying your own bricks. Of course, they do that because it's the arcade. You need these games to last for a short amount of time so you get more quarters. You can't have the players just decide that they're going to play the game for five hours by all agreeing in advance that they're going to do hold shots for every single one. And so it's like, then then this person holds onto it for five minutes or something. They have to have something that keeps it flowing. But it's basically the same game in all the important aspects. It's still fun as an arcade game. But it doesn't do as well. It's not as big a phenomenon as in the home. That kind of sums up uh, the state of things in the home. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, ball and paddle games have such a, a legacy that even when Atari releases its 5200 system in 1982, the pack-in title is Super Breakout. I think that was a pretty silly pack-in title. And people at the time thought it was a pretty silly pack-in title. Again, they just thought that their official explanation, and this could have just been their face-saving explanation, it might not be true, their official face-saving explanation is that they thought it did the best job of showing off the capabilities of, of the hardware. Not from an audiovisual perspective, obviously, but in terms, I think, of gameplay, which again just goes to show this idea that when you're reducing the graphics to their simplest form, gameplay can shine through. But it was a poor choice to pack in with the 5200. Atari eventually realized that and was like, yeah, maybe we should like put Pac-Man in it. I don't know. If you're thinking about playing Pac-Man on a 5200 with uh, non-self-centering analog joysticks, just, uh, you know, don't. That's a bad time. But I digress. So that kind of brings us both the uh, coin-op realm and the consumer realm, the home game realm of ball and paddle games kind of through the golden age and the crash. No need to really go into computer games. What computer games exist are just ports of what's going on in the arcade or on home consoles. The one thing I will say real fast is uh, some people may be aware. We talked about, of course, how Wozniak did the prototype of Breakout for Atari. Well, afterwards, when he was designing the Apple II, kind of his target specs for the Apple II were good enough that I could play a game of Breakout on the Apple II. 
So it's not the reason he created the Apple II. He was creating an updated Apple computer to replace the Apple I anyway. But he determined the target specs by essentially saying, can I play a faithful version of Breakout on this hardware? So Breakout inspired Space Invaders and inspired the engineering of the Apple II. That's some pretty influential work for a ball, a paddle, and some bricks. Certainly breaking into new grounds. Yes, I see what you did there. So uh, the final topic that we need to talk about here is kind of the evolution of the game into its more modern form. Because today, you type in Breakout or Blockbuster or any of these things into a search engine, into Google, you're going to get all sorts of hits for Switch games, for Steam games, for iPhone games, for Android games. I got Foo Fighters Breakout. Well, yes, that was a hit song by Foo Fighters. It has nothing to do with the game. But yes, you may need to qualify that with Breakout Video Game, I suppose. <laughs> Thank you, Foo Fighters. <laughs> oh, there's no, they're not the only one. You have these Swing Out Sister people. You have Breakout, the official trailer. Yes. In 2023. Hmm. It is a common name for things. But if you look for games, you can find quite a few of them out there, except most of them are not pure breakout games. Some of them are, but most of them tend to involve spaceships and power-ups and all sorts of other weird enhancements that have nothing to do with the original ball and paddle gameplay, while still maintaining the same basic gameplay of controlling something moving left and right at the bottom of the screen and breaking blocks that are appearing at the top of the screen. The missing link between the breakout of yesteryear and the many blockbusting style games of today is a little arcade game from Taito by the name of Arkanoid. I remember that name. <laughs> yes. Arkanoid, which came out in 1986, was truly a game that was a sign of its times. This was the period of time in Japan where the coin-operated industry was going into a bit of a slump. As we've talked about in other episodes, uh, at the beginning of 1985, the law regulating adult establishments, essentially, was expanded to include game centers among those establishments that needed to be regulated. In effect, you're saying that in 1983, that was the worst. In 1984, that was the worst, too. That in 1985, I went into a bit of a decline. Sure. Bonus point if you get that one. Something like that. But, I mean, Japan wasn't in the same way necessarily affected by the crash that hit the U.S. arcade industry in 82-83. In but it very much had its own problems, especially the expansion of the law here and the regulation of game centers. So it was a period of transition. We've talked about this in the context of some of the companies. It was a period of time when it was just a really good time in both Japan and the United States, which was recovering from its own crash by this time, but had transitioned to a market that was far more dependent on kits, as we've talked about in our Picking Up the Pieces episode, than it was on full cabinets. This was a really good time to create a simple, cheap kit 
that could be easily slotted into existing cabinets and had a lot of play appeal and was not that expensive. So, of course, just as we've talked about all along, that means it's time for another blockbusting game because you can make them cheaply without necessarily sacrificing fun. So that's exactly what Taito decided to do. They were pulling their locations. You know, this was a period of time when the arcades themselves were in a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of renovation going on. Taito itself had a scrap and build program going on where they were trying to make their centers more desirable. So, of course, they were in very close touch with their operators, both their own operators from the arcades they uh, controlled and the other operators they sold to. Their salespeople started hearing that it looked like a blockbusting game would be very popular. Their peak has long since passed. Space Invaders buried them back in the late 70s, but there's a sentiment growing, and I don't know exactly why, but there was a sentiment growing that a blockbusting game could be a big success in this market as a kit. Just make something very cheap, very primitive for the time hardware, and just get something out there that can go into these game cabinets. Taito decided to do that, but instead of just assigning it to somebody, they decided to hold a department-wide competition in their coin-operated development section, the Yokohama Research Institute. They were going to pick the best version of a block-breaking game that came out of that session. It turns out that instead of having one that they really liked, they had two that they really liked. Created by two designers named Akira Fujita, created the one, and Hiroshi Sujino created the other. So they ordered these two designers to actually combine the best ideas of both their games into this one game that they would release. In an incredible twist, These two individuals, Fujita and Sujino, had actually known each other since they were in nursery school together. That's pretty impressive. Yes, so now we're going to go back and learn a little bit about the creators of Arkanoid. I was so excited I discovered this. This isn't something that's really out there that much in English, but back in 2018, Beat Magazine did a very short-lived series of blog posts by creators, video game creators, where they kind of told a bit about their life stories. It only lasted like seven or eight entries, but one of the people that participated was actually Hiroshi Tsujino. You know, I did some machine translation on this, and this may be the first time this has been in English. I can't say that for certain, but some fun new info here. I wasn't sure we'd really have a lot to talk about on Arkanoid when I was prepping for this episode, and then I discovered this, so I'm really happy about that. Hiroshi Tsujino and Akira Fujita grew up in the rural city of Takaoka in Toyama Prefecture, which is kind of on the opposite coast of Japan from Tokyo. Early in their lives, they didn't really have a lot of exposure to technology or game centers or electromechanical amusements or any of that kind of stuff because they were in a more rural part of the country. But when the Space Invaders boom hit, that was such a big deal that it invaded (laughs) everywhere. He actually learned about it on television first, you know, because there were news reports about this phenomenon. 
So that intrigued him when he saw that as a kid on the news. He was born in 1965, so it's about 13 years old at this time. He's uh, just becoming an adolescent. So eventually it does appear, even in his neck of the woods, because it's such a, a huge phenomenon. He gets to play it for the first time at a local supermarket that opens a game center. He's immediately hooked on it, but his family, I mean, I don't think they're like dirt poor or anything, but his family is certainly not super rich either, and let's just say that they're not giving him the steady stream of 100 yen coins that he needs to feed his space invaders habit. So he does that thing that all the moral panic people say the kids are doing. Most moral panics do have some kernel of truth laying in there somewhere. He would rummage through vending machines and find coins wherever he could. I don't know that he actually stole from people, like I said, a kernel of truth, but he would basically scavenge anywhere he could for 100 yen coins so he could feed his addiction. He made friends with other uh, kids that had similar interests, one of those being Akira Fujita. Now, they'd known each other already because they had gone to school together for a long time, but they weren't really friends in those younger days. But during this period, as they were all hanging out in the invader houses together, they became close friends. Their hobby kind of took another turn when finally in their neighborhood, a small game center opened near a computer shop as well. So now they had a source that was a little closer to them. So basically, the two of them and a third friend by the name of Shibata, last name Shibata, started hanging out together at these two locations, and so they were becoming interested in the games and the technology behind the games. But they still didn't have the money to play as often as they wanted to. So what they started doing, especially after the boom was over, the initial Space Invaders boom was over, and the game centers weren't as crowded— so people didn't care so much, they just started hanging out at the game center and observing the games, seeing how they played, trying to figure out how they worked. Sujino was a talented artist, so he started drawing the pixel art on the screen. Fujita would often play through the games, kind of figuring out how the game design worked and moving the figures around in such a way that Sujino could get the sketches that he wanted. And Shibata was really interested in sound, so he would record the sounds on the arcade machines so that he could play around with those. You know, they didn't have the money to play the games, so they started just kind of figuring out how they were made, how they were designed. Eventually, this also led them to start collecting game ephemera, particularly flyers, because they realized that the game center would get flyers advertising the latest games. So they would go around to the game centers and ask them for the flyers. And, you know, these are just advertising circulars that were sent out by the point-op companies. So, I mean, they're really of no value to the game center. I mean, it helps them know what the latest games are, but once they've seen that and ordered what they wanted— there's nothing they need them for anymore. So, you know, they would get them. That obsession got to the point where they were like, well, we can't get all the flyers we want. We know there's more games out there than come to our little game centers here, because they're still in a pretty rural area. We want to get more flyers. Maybe we should write to the companies and ask them for flyers so we can see the other flyers. They're obsessed with games. They want to dissect them, discuss them, look at them, everything about them. Why don't we write the game companies? And they're like, well, but we're just a bunch of kids. Like, if just a kid writes asking for a game flyer, they probably will just blow us off. So they decided, let's create a club. Let's create our own game club and give it an official sounding name. And then we'll write on behalf of the game club for these flyers. So they founded what they called the Takaoka Amusement Machine Players Association, 
and started soliciting flyers from companies. Then they decided, well, we've got all these flyers, and Tsuchino's a good drawer, and Fujita's a good writer. Why don't we create a little fanzine? It's not strategy guides, because as, as uh, Tsujino says, they never had enough money to play through all the games entirely, so they didn't have the money to form strategies. But it was kind of like, let's share information from flyers, share some other information that maybe we learned as we wrote to get flyers from these companies. Uh, we can include some of Tsujino's drawings. We love sitting around talking about the latest games and daydreaming about the latest games. I bet other people will, too. If anyone right now is thinking to themselves, boy, this sounds in a lot of ways very similar to what Satoshi Tajiri and the Game Freak people who would end up creating Pokemon were doing. Well, you're absolutely right. This is very similar. Game Freak had more strategy in it than theirs did, but it's basically the same thing, just taking their love of games and making a fanzine. And in fact, they even met Tajiri and hung out with him occasionally in this time period. As they were doing this and soliciting all of these companies, I mean, they got stuff, uh, according to him, from all the big companies, Taito, Namco, Sega, Nintendo, Takeon, Data East, Universal, all of them. They started learning also about the game design contests that these companies would hold. We talked about this, of course, principally in the context of Square and Enix, rather Enix itself, when we did our Square Enix episode. Computer game companies often did this, but our coin-op companies in Japan would also do this in this period of time, especially since after the Space Invaders boom ended, there was a lot of angst about what comes next, what do we do next, and so they were soliciting ideas from all directions. So they would hold game idea contests where people could just submit game concepts to win a prize. They learned about this by all the writing in that they were doing. They entered one, and uh, Tsujino won. So he started entering more, and Fujita started entering a bunch, and they both, you know, were winning them a lot of the time. Now, none of their games were ever created, but they were getting the prize money from these game contests. When it came time to graduate high school and do what you would usually do, go to college, both Fujita and Tsujino decided that rather than go to college, they would use their notoriety that they've gotten from winning these game contests to get hired by a video game company. So they both end up getting hired by Taito. They started in the MSX division doing ports. This was around 1983, I believe. Yes, it was 1983. Then they graduated to making their own original MSX games. Not together, because you didn't need two designers on an MSX game, but they were both in the division doing this. Then when the MSX kind of petered out and the family computer overtook it, the MSX division was closed down and they were transferred to the coin-operated games division, which is how they found themselves in 1986 being the joint winners of yet another game design contest to design a new ball and paddle game. They tag-teamed this. Uh, Fujita, according to Tsujino, was the better writer, so he took on the game design. Tsujino, as I said before, was a talented artist, so he took on the visual design. They collaborated to create this game. You know, this was a time when sci-fi was still in the air, when certainly space shooters, even though they were down from the Space Invaders' height, were, were still in the air. I mean, Gradius had been a hit. So he decided to go in a sci-fi direction and was particularly influenced by the movie Tron in putting together the visuals. They created kind of this robotic, futuristic kind of world. 
Now, they still had to keep it pretty basic ball and paddle graphics because part of this is that they were using a really low-spec hardware system. It only displayed 16 colors. You could only display 16 sprites on the screen simultaneously. So this was a pretty primitive hardware by 1986. So they kept it simple, but he made sure to use a variety of bright colors on the bricks to really make it pop and to have a distinctive art design, like I said, largely drawing on Tron and other science fiction movies of the period. Then they also drew from the shooter genre to make it more interesting by including power-ups, which of course had become very common in video games by this point. As you're breaking the bricks, they will occasionally drop various power-ups. There's a laser that allows you to shoot lasers with the fire button at the same time you're still bouncing the ball, and those destroy bricks as well. There's one that allows you to extend the width of your paddle. There's one that gives you the same ability that warlords had, where you can actually catch the ball for a second and reposition your paddle before you use it. There's another one that slows down the ball. There's a multi-ball, just like in pinball. There's a multi-ball, which causes two extra balls to display. So they included various power-ups. They also went with different patterns. Rather than having just all the bricks at the top of the screen arrayed the same way every time, wash, rinse, repeat, there were different stages, and they each had different patterns of blocks, including silver blocks that needed two hits and gold blocks that were invulnerable. Obviously, you didn't have to clear the gold blocks to beat the stage, but they served as another obstacle to trying to clear the stage of the blocks you actually could. Then the other blocks each had a different point value depending on their color. So what you had here is a game that combined the fast action of Breakout with some of the more modern conventions of a shooter. There were even other objects that would come onto the screen akin to enemy spaceships that couldn't do any harm to you and didn't have to be destroyed to clear the level, but were other things that essentially got in the way of you finishing up clearing the bricks. So it was the combination of Breakout and a shooting game, which is kind of appropriate since Breakout also inspired Space Invaders, the prototypical shooting game. This is the concept that has dominated ever since. Really, modern games, even though they never, of course, use the term Arkanoid, because that's a trademark of Taito, only Taito releases Arkanoid games, even though all the games are Blockbuster and Bust Out and all of these other variations, they're really not Breakout clones so much as they are Arkanoid clones. Arkanoid was a great hit because, as I said, this was a period of time when there was a bit of a slump, since it was a very cheap kit. It was something that was very easy for game centers in Japan and arcades in the U.S. and other parts of the country or of the world to purchase and just slot into existing cabinets of games that weren't doing well anymore. It had that great combination of fast action and strategy that all of these ball and paddle games have continued to fascinate with, as we said in the first episode, because of the way our primitive ancestors hunted and survived. We kind of have this built-in fascination with tracking high-speed, bouncing objects like balls. So it taps into that same fascination. In Japan, it became the highest-grossing table arcade game of 1987. Game Machine separated their charts between upright cabinets and tabletop cabinets. In the United States, it became the highest-grossing conversion kit game 
1987. Again, the replay and play meter charts separated kits out from full cabinets. In its particular niches, it was the most successful game of 1987 in both Japan and the United States, and is the reason that we basically have Arkanoid clones today, and that you can go to your Switch or your iPhone or your Android phone right now and have a plethora of breakout slash Arkanoid style games to choose from. It is amazing how entertaining, especially the advanced versions of Arkanoid can be. Mm -hmm. You just have all this stuff going around. It becomes almost like a puzzle game, especially with the blocks that cannot be destroyed Mm -hmm. and the ones that take multiple hits. Oh, if I get my ball in this narrow corridor, then it's going to bounce really rapidly, get behind enemy lines, start tearing everything up. And then it's going to start dropping down all these bonuses. Then I get this bonus that spawns my ball into three more balls. Now I have three balls bouncing behind enemy line. Oh, no, one escaped. I got to bounce it back up there. Get back to work, you. You have a job to do. It's a lot of fun. It's just fun to watch yeah. a YouTube video of it. Yeah, we really are. I mean, I, I do believe, I mean, obviously I'm not, you know, an evolutionary scientist of any kind, but I really do believe that there is an innate fascination based on our evolution, based on how we survived way back in the day with high-speed balls just moving around, with tracking those, because we had to be very good at tracking fast-moving objects to survive, both to hunt and to avoid dangers. There's just a fascination to that, and what Arkanoid did was it took that same fascination and just added a few twists from kind of the shooter genre to give it its kind of perfected form. You even get the final boss, which is just a uh, head that actually shoots at you. Yep. You're trying to bounce the ball as many times onto it while avoiding being hit. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Space Invaders meets uh, Breakout, which is so appropriate because Space Invaders was spawned from Breakout. (laughs) I guess we're just going to have to break out of this episode and get on a new arc in order to discover new untapped caches of video game history behind enemy lines so what can we talk about in our next episode well i think we need to talk about something a little bit scarier jeffrey i like horror yes something that involves horror and maybe even involves survival survival horror yes but not that one the prototypical game that set the scene for survival horror before the term survival horror came into being I am talking about that classic 1992 game, Alone in the Dark. But I only have this candle here, so how are we going to survive the darkness? I suppose we'll have to find out next time on They Create Worlds, Jeffrey. I guess so. So okay, kids, your quest is to go get a flashlight, candles, matches, anything to survive the darkness so that you can survive next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. 
Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>